Welcome to Powered by Evidence, a podcast by the Global Evaluation Initiative. We're a global partnership of organizations that help governments and public institutions create robust, country-owned monitoring and evaluation systems. In this podcast, we invite experts from our international network and other special guests to explore new ideas and revisit challenges that are still unsolved. We examine failures, reflect on successes, and discuss the way forward. Thank you for sharing your time with us. Hello and welcome to GEI's first podcast. I'm Dugan Fraser, Program Manager of the GEI. Since we're launching our pilot season of the podcast right around International Women's Day, we decided to focus our first discussion on a very important issue in monitoring and evaluation, the gender data gap. At GEI, we believe that gender equity is a fundamental human right and a critical priority for the M&E community. With the COVID-19 pandemic continuing to expose and exacerbate gender inequalities around the world, it's especially important that we keep gender at the forefront of our work right now. In light of this topic, we thought it best to turn over hosting duties today to my colleague, Jessica Meckler, who's GEI Strategy Officer and the lead on our focus on gender and inclusion. Hi, Jessica. Hi, Dugan. So, Jessica, tell us a bit more about the conversation that our listeners are going to hear. Sure, Dugan. I'm really looking forward to speaking with two fantastic guests today, Talib Kalish and Mega Pradhan. Talib is a senior economist at the World Bank Development Data Group. He was a core team member of the World Development Report 2021 Data for Better Lives. He's also a team leader for the Living Standards Measurement Study, which has been the flagship household program of the World Bank since 1980. Mega Pradhan is the Associate Director of Training at JPAL South Asia and the Director of Clear South Asia, a global initiative for evaluation capacity development coordinated by GEI. She provides technical and strategic direction to JPAL South Asia's capacity building partnerships with state and central governments. Talib and Mega have a lot to share on the topic of incorporating gender dimensions into data collection efforts for evaluation, and I'm sure this is going to be a very valuable conversation for our listeners. Thanks, Jessica. I'm looking forward to hearing the discussion. Thanks for joining us today, Mega and Talib. I'm really excited to chat with you, and I really can't wait to hear what you have to share with us. To kick us off, let's set the stage a little bit more broadly. Why is bridging the gender data gap important? Talib, can you share a few thoughts? Thanks, Jessica, for having me today and good to join you all. Uh, so uh, in, in answering your question, maybe it is useful to set uh, the broader stage a bit for our audience. So despite the evidence showing that empowering women fuels economies in a way that benefits men and women uh, more broadly, uh, we're facing persisting and, and mutually enforcing uh, gender inequalities uh, in, in economic, political, and social life across the world. So we know uh, women lag behind labor force participation, full-time employment, uh, earnings, uh, social and legal barriers to uh, women's ownership of assets uh, exist, uh, this lowers their productivity, inhibits their ability uh, to become entrepreneurs, and also forces them into less profitable sectors. So Transformational solutions we need uh, to tackle the challenges faced by women and girls uh, and men and boys, uh, ultimately uh, eliminating gender inequality 
is only possible if you have the right data to measure these gaps uh, and understand their drivers uh, and also the interrelationship between these gaps. So the solutions to uh, eliminating uh, gender inequality and ultimately raising living standards for everyone, we need good data. We need good data on individuals, uh, on the lives of men and women. Uh, so one of the key sources of these data that allow us to measure gender gaps uh, are uh, household surveys. And household surveys typically collect individual level data on men and women, on women and girls. And yet the survey landscape presents so much room for improvement. Uh, so one of the key aspects for household surveys to, to improve on is, for instance, asset ownership. Most assets are owned by individuals, uh, but yet it's typical for household surveys to uh, either not identify owners for key assets uh, or identify owners, but only interview a single most knowledgeable household member. Uh, and that's that's often uh, results in seemingly rich information about who owns what within the household, but only comes from perspective of one single individual. And the research that we've conducted uh, over the last decade, uh, including as part of the Living Standards Measurement Study Program, uh, which I'm a part of, has showcased that uh, proxy respondents uh, provide information that is not in line with individuals' own reporting, and particularly for women. And that Resulting data in turn biases are our understanding of gender gap in, in asset ownership and wealth. Uh, and proxy respondent crisis actually applies to other topics, uh, such as labor, where surveys collect information on individuals, but don't always uh, interview the individuals themselves. So uh, in a way, gender data gap is important because we need uh, information, rich information on, on, on lives, livelihoods of men and women. Uh, and on differences among themselves uh, in terms of access and, and return uh, from economic opportunities, uh, which again uh, underlie uh, the solutions that we need to design to not only uh, effectively close those gaps, but uh, actually raise living standards for everyone. That was a really good overview of how surveys and uh, this kind of data is important. Mega, do you want to share a little bit more on the practitioner perspective? First of all, thank you so much, Jessica, for having me over. I'm really excited uh, to be doing this. Um, uh, firstly, what I'd like to do is, you know, make this a little bit more concrete and think about what really happens in a world where you have um, a pervasive gender data gap, when you're either not systematically collecting data on half of the world's population, um, or what you're measuring is not really giving you the true picture. And, uh, you know, because we really be going into sort of the research and measurement aside of this, I do want to take the practitioner and policymaker perspective here. You know, how does one design programs and policies that are attempting to change something uh, which is not even, uh, you know, being measured um, or you do not have data to track it over time? And then there are several situations where you're designing and implementing um, a supposedly gender neutral program, uh, but you take the man as the default, uh, you're not taking into account, for instance, you know, women's, um, you know, reproductive, productive, uh, community managing roles, you're not taking, to, you're not really addressing women's uh, practical and strategic needs. And the results that you have are instances, for example, where you're uh, introducing new varieties of rice seeds, which may be high yielding, but their stocks are too short, uh, or they take long to cook. And so they're not taken up by female farmers. Um, you have well-intentioned programs 
for instance, encouraging uh, parental engagement in children's education, uh, but the disproportionate burden of that falls uh, on the mother uh, to a long list of shows as she's already doing. And so these are just a few examples. Um, and we've seen the gender data gap uh, manifest itself across diverse domains ranging from healthcare uh, to public transport uh, uh, to technology. Secondly, what I want to talk about is, you know, really how the COVID-19 pandemic um, has underscored how this gender data gap uh, and its consequences are really playing out on a massive scale. You know, you've seen across the world, women and girls are disproportionately affected uh, by the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, with the loss of livelihoods, increased burdens of unpaid care work, increase in gender-based violence, and the lack of gender data um, in this context has really affected our ability uh, to respond uh, to the crisis. And unfortunately, this is also happening at a time where uh, data collection efforts themselves have been disrupted uh, due to the pandemic. And then the last thing uh, that I want to mention in terms of why bridging the gender data gap is really critical right now is how now with um, increasing use of uh, machine learning that use you know massive amounts of data uh, that already exists to find uh, patterns and make predictions, uh, there is a concern that uh, gender data gaps are potentially getting embedded uh, in you know artificial intelligence systems, and they're really further uh, amplifying the gender bias um, and issues of gender inequality. Thanks, Mega. I think it's very important to ground these discussions in these real life examples. So I think the perspectives you just brought were really important. And I think it's really useful to see how the gender data gap comes into play both at the higher level policy um, and larger scale data world, as well as at the practitioner levels and the idea of designing good programs and policies that address the needs of various peoples. So to continue on, what I'd like to do is start unpacking this idea of women's empowerment, which uh, Talib talked about and we're, we're going to focus on a little bit and um, really just dive into what is women's empowerment and when should we measure this concept when conducting evaluations? Mega, would you like to start us off? Thanks for that question, Jessica. Uh, it's indeed very important for us to first understand and precisely define concepts before we attempt to measure them. Uh, this is, of course, especially important when we are looking at constructs like uh, women's empowerment, women's agency, which are often sort of used loosely and interchangeably. A great definition of empowerment is one put forward by uh, Naila Kabir, who describes empowerment as a process by which those who have been denied the ability to make strategic life choices acquire such an ability. I also want to talk about a related concept, which is that of agency. Um, and we can understand women's agency as their ability to define goals and act on them, uh, to make decisions that matter to them and to participate in the economy and public life. Uh, and the third concept that's also really important and related is of gender norms, which essentially refers to informal rules that impose expectations about uh, behavior that are dependent on gender. And these norms could originate from uh, the individual, uh, from family or from society. And all these constructs that I've described um, are closely linked. Uh, again, uh, Naila Kabi provides a very useful uh, resources, agency, and achievements framework, which um, emphasizes empowerment as a process and how it is important to measure uh, three things. One, the resources or preconditions that could enhance women's ability to make choices. And, you know, this could be their access to, you know, material resources, human capital or social resources. Uh, two, 
women's agency in terms of uh, their voice, participation, influence in decision-making about strategic life choices, and three, the achievements or outcomes that could result from increased agency. And this could include things like health, education, livelihoods, political participation, etc. And so measuring indicators related to resources, agency, and achievements over the course of an evaluation can be a really helpful way to measure uh, the process of empowerment. And of course, underlying all of this are you know, the cultural, social, and political uh, norms, as well as institutions that are operating in a given context and influence every step of the empowerment process. So now moving to your question on when should we be measuring empowerment and other other gender dimensions. So my answer here would be that uh, we should always consider gender in measurement and evaluations, even when the program is not targeting uh, one specific gender. Um, And I'll mention a few reasons. Um, I think the first is that when you're not considering gender in monitoring and evaluation or research, uh, this may bias what we measure and what uh, data that we that we collect. And this is something that uh, Talib already alluded to. Surveys, especially in household surveys, uh, a lot of times, you know, we are interviewing people who might not be sort of the this, the respondent that actually has the true information. Uh, so, for instance. Uh, Typically, the adult module that's implemented in household surveys would look at the head of the household, which oftentimes is going to be, uh, especially in you know contexts such as in India, it is going to be the male. Um, and so, what happens over here is that you're not getting you know complete as well as accurate representation of what uh, women's uh, views are. And this also happens in other kinds of surveys. For instance, if you're looking at leaders, politicians, business. Uh, business owners where women may not be represented um, as much. The second uh, reason why you need to have gender dimensions um, irrespective of what kind of program it is, is that programs often have uh, different impacts on people according uh, to the gender or other aspects of their identity. Um, and so there are, I think, lots of interesting examples that have shown this. Uh, for instance, one could see how, what is the impact of providing loans or other financial services to um, SMEs. And uh, evidence has shown that uh, uh, positive impacts you know, were seen on businesses which were owned by men, but not on businesses owned by women. Um, and this was because uh, women did not have control over economic resources at home and their loans got used in their hu- uh, husband's businesses instead uh, of theirs. Relatedly, I think it's really important to not just think about um, the gender dimensions in terms of uh, looking at uh, disaggregating our analysis by gender. I think it's very important to also go beyond that and see why um, why you see the results that are there. Why, why is it that women um, are showing differential impacts from what we see in men? Thanks, Mika. I think you've brought up a lot of interesting points, including the idea of needing to define some of these nebulous concepts, as well as where this starts to come into play with surveys and measuring data and the, when you're conducting evaluations, some of the things you need to keep in mind. Talib, would you like to share some more thoughts from your experiences with these large household surveys and how this fits in? Yeah, Mega covered a lot of ground. I mean, particularly on the conceptualization of uh, of empowerment. Uh, and I think I, I'd like to second the utility of, you know, Nyla Kabir's framework, uh, you know, for our understanding of empowerment and, and also guiding uh, the way in which topics on which uh, we collect information on household surveys, which continue to be, you know, uh, enduring innovations that offer us uh, this, you know, scientifically robust, uh, structured approach 
to uh, understanding people's livelihoods, constraints uh, that they're facing and the choices that they're making. But in terms of when we should consider measuring women's empowerment, Mega said very key uh, points that I'd like to uh, emphasize, uh, which is, first of all, when even when the uh, program is seemingly gender neutral, you may in fact have gendered impacts. Uh, so in a way, you need to set yourself up to be able to capture these gender impacts, uh, whether or not actually the program has an explicit focus on gender gaps. Uh, as, as we've been trying to make the point that these gender inequities are really uh, underlying um, much of the development outcomes that we're trying to achieve at the individual level. So for us as, as evaluators, we need to have the tools in place uh, to be able to look at gender impacts. And that means good data on individuals that are self-reported about their own lives and experiences, as opposed to uh, hearing these human stories from perspectives of, uh, of, of others, or hearing these stories in the context of, say, operations and in household surveys that are not particularly designed in a gender-sensitive way. And I'll give a few examples of that later on in the podcast. I think you emphasize some of the most important points. Um, and I think what this is nicely done is set out why the gender data gap is important, when we need to start thinking about this in evaluation, which is very overarching. And so with that framework and that basis, I'd like to dive into some of the challenges that this poses. What are some of the challenges in measuring women's and girls' empowerment and other gender dimensions? And what can we as evaluators do to mitigate these challenges? Talib, would you like to share a few thoughts on that? Sure. Maybe uh, I'll come at this uh, from a perspective of large-scale household surveys, which, uh, again, uh, form the basis of uh, individual-level data, representative individual-level data that we'd like to collect on beneficiaries as well as non-beneficiaries of the, of the programs of both men and women, boys and girls, to be able to look at these gendered impacts. So in the household survey world, irrespective of whether these are official household surveys that are conducted by national statistical uh, offices or smaller scale surveys that are conducted uh, specifically for evaluations of different uh, programs and interventions, I think we have a long way to go uh, to make sure that these household surveys are designed and implemented in what we call a gender sensitive way. So because uh, if not, uh, again, this has resulting impacts on data quality uh, and on whether we understand these gaps and their drivers in the correct way. So I'll give a few examples. In the context of household surveys, I think incorporating gender perspectives into the design process from the get-go is, is critical, just like the way we mentioned this for evaluation purposes. So uh, in, in the household survey world, for instance, uh, there's uh, quite a bit of work we still have to do in uh, recruiting uh, our enumerators uh, in a gender-balanced way, in making sure that uh, when we are eliciting uh, information from human subjects that are sensitive in nature, uh, gender-specific dimensions of that information collection are taken into account. And in specific cases, we do need to think about gender matching uh, between respondents and enumerators to, to ensure that intended inf information flow uh, and and to establish that rapport with the respondent, again, to be able to capture as accurately as possible the information that we need. Um, many of the topics that 
we introduce in household surveys, again, to understand, to better understand uh, gender gaps in, in asset ownership, in, in, in work and employment outcomes, different uh, norms and belief systems that uh, our enumerators uh, or the survey managers uh, subscribe to that are not always evident at the surface. So uh, when we are trying to collect data on these topics that are, say, non-traditional uh, in certain settings that we're, tr- you know, we're trying to uh, introduce, unpacking people's understanding of these concepts uh, and, and actually training them on why it's important to collect data on, on such topics uh, is also important. So, so training, in a way, is important to motivate the importance of this work to people that are not accustomed to thinking about it or thinking about it in a particular way where uh, we're trying to expand the perspectives that they should keep in mind when engaging in human subjects such that uh, certain types of behavior or certain types of priming when they're asking the questions, when they're conducting the interview are absent from the process. Uh, I would say uh, a few other things, uh, Jessica, since you asked. So, uh, many of the topics that, again, we need uh, data on are supposed to be, uh, say, investigated at the individual level. So uh, I made this point before where we ought to be interviewing individuals, asking about their life experiences uh, from their own perspectives. And I think surveys we see ha- are quite heterogeneous in terms of the extent to which they allow for proxy respondents. You know, proxy respondents are convenient because they're a cost-saving measure. Uh, When you're conducting household surveys, you could be collecting seemingly individual-level data, but reported from a perspective of one person or a few people in the household, where you don't go that extra distance to try and schedule the interview, uh, you know, with someone that may not be available at the time you tried the first time to conduct that interview in that household. So uh, I think... Uh, I would say in the large-scale household surveys conducted by national statistical offices in low-income settings, there's not sufficient attention being paid to this particular area. And, and, uh, and I would say that in the, in the last particularly five years, uh, as part of the Living Standards Measurement Study, uh, we really have uh, shown a light on the importance of this particular topic in large-scale household surveys where we have supported national statistical offices in scaling up best practices uh, in conducting personal interviews in private settings and making sure that we minimize the use of proxy respondents. And the last set of issues that I would I would highlight that sort of speak to uh, the challenges of collecting gender data, uh, they're actually related to absence of validated cost-effective survey tools that we need uh, to be able to collect the information. So there are many areas where it's not obvious how you should ask the question. It's not obvious how you should design the questionnaire. It's not obvious how you should conduct the interview, right? I, I think agency as a broad area, say, going back to Nyla Kabir's uh, work, also has several dimensions of agency that we'd like to capture. Uh, And many of them are uh, around, uh, say, uh, perceptions, uh, self-reported data uh, that are 
quite sensitive to the way that you ask questions or the order in which you ask questions or the order in which, you know, groups of questions are asked in the context of an interview, uh, whether you give examples or not in the context of a question to explain topics, how that impacts data quality. So there are intricacies associated with the development of these tools that we would like to rely on to get the data that we need. And yet that research and development need continues to persist in some areas that are fundamental to uh, measuring empowerment, right? So another another good example would be time use. So if you think about, you know, uh, our understanding of gender differences in, uh, in paid work versus, uh, you know, unpaid care and domestic work, uh, we rely on time use data collection where individuals report uh, their time allocations to specific activities, right? Time use modules, time use surveys, they predominantly rely on 24-hour recall. So uh, f- from your individual perspective, right? We And you know, maybe we're not the typical respondent of a household survey in a low-income country, but 24-hour recall uh, could be challenging for educated for non-educated respondents for very different reasons. And yet the reliance on 24-hour recall as a convenient tool, as a cost-effective tool, uh, continues to persist. Uh, And we don't actually know whether this is a validated way of capturing time use. So the road to data uh, you know, to, to road to good data, the, it requires a lot of planning, a lot of experimentation, a lot of investments in public goods, in research and development uh, that is often underprovided, right? And I think that is also one aspect of, say, uh, constraints that we need to collectively solve, uh, not only investments in data, but investments in the foundations of, of this data generation process that uh, allows us to better understand gender gaps and, and ultimately devise uh, programs to address them and also evaluate those programs to look at the gendered impacts. I absolutely love the term road to good data because I think what you've just described is so many of the challenges that come up across the entire uh, pathway of collecting, planning for collecting, and then uh, looking at data to understand high quality data that gets at these individual lived experiences and responses and how difficult that is. So I think that was a really, a really great way of looking at it across the um, implementation as well as the methodological aspects. So I think that was really useful. Thanks for walking us through all those points. Uh, Mega, I'd like to give you some time as well to share your experiences and your thoughts on the challenges and ways to mitigate these. So issues can come in at um, different points in the process of measurement, starting with the construct itself and choosing the indicators um, to getting responses. And we've seen how sometimes uh, gathering even very simple data, such as household size, can be quite complex. And this becomes even more difficult when you're designing a measurement strategy for gender outcomes. Of course, the good news is that there are some simple and practical tips, uh, as well as creative measurement uh, techniques that can help mitigate these challenges. So the first challenge uh, that I'd like to talk about is the fact that empowerment as a concept is complex and nebulous. Um, It's uh, 
beyond just measuring access to resources or changes in well-being. Uh, it is about meaningful choice a lot of times. And we usually only observe the outcomes of choices and not the real decision-making process itself, uh, which means that a lot of times it is hard to know whether changes in well-being that we see are indeed the result of women's increased ability to make choices. So um, as an example, in an evaluation in rural Bangladesh, uh, researchers found that more married women took on income-generating activities as a result of an empowerment program, which initially appeared to be an empowering labor market choice. Um, yet, um, in qualitative interviews that were conducted with these women, researchers found that some of them were actually working out of severe economic necessity, um, and many had limited autonomy, choosing uh, what income generating activity uh, they were participating in. Uh, so there are issues like these which come up and there are several ways researchers can um, uh, try to tackle this challenge. So one um, direct way to measure choice is you know, simply to ask people about the decision-making process itself. Um, so one could ask uh, men and women general questions about who makes decisions in their household, uh, for example, um, who usually makes decisions about, say, major household purchases or uh, visits to the family or healthcare. Uh, and you could also ask uh, more specific questions uh, about a very concrete scenario, which is tailored to the choices of women that they care about in the study context. And this is oftentimes easier for them to answer uh, accurately. The second uh, way one could do this is, you know, to measure women's and men's preferences at baseline and track whether these outcomes move in the direction of women's preferences after the program. Um, so, for instance, in one uh, study on women policymakers in India, researchers found that women's preferences uh, for investments in local infrastructure were very different um, from men's. And um, they tracked new infrastructure projects in communities to see whether they move to be more in line with women's preferences. Um, and so this approach was uh, very useful because uh, you could explicitly then measure what women want, which is a key part of the definition of empowerment. And then the last um, approach that I want to talk about is how you can observe women and men making choices directly. Um, and this could be, you know, in a real world setting or it could also be through uh, a game or some sort of structured community activity. And this, again, is quite helpful because you're able to observe actions directly um, and we do not have to rely on people's reports um, of how they participated in decisions. So. For example, uh, we could count the number of times women speak up in community meetings um, and see if it increases after a particular program has uh, been conducted. Um, another example uh, from a study is, you know, where researchers created proxy measures of women's bargaining power in a marriage. Um, and they uh, saw this by offering women a choice of getting either a slightly small uh, cash transfer delivered directly to them or getting a slightly large cash transfer delivered uh, to their husband. So there are sort of interesting techniques like this where you can actually observe their choices uh, directly. The second challenge of specific um, to women empowerment is that empowerment uh, means different things in different contexts, uh, but we may also want to compare across different contexts. So the issue here is that we need to strike a balance between using locally tailored indicators, uh, but not customizing some of the standardized measures that already exist so much that um, it doesn't really lend itself to 
meaningful inter-country or inter-regional comparisons that you may want to make. So here again, there are, you know, different strategies and tips that one can employ. Uh, the first, of course, is, you know, using findings from uh, formative research um, that you do uh, at the beginning to select uh, or develop locally tailored indicators and questions. Uh, so just as an example, the, the Bangladesh study that I was alluding to before, um, over there, uh, researchers, uh, instead of using sort of a more general question on uh, you know, broader decision making, for instance, about uh, saying who usually makes decisions about healthcare uh, uh, for yourself and your family. They actually tailored it to the local context and came up with very specific questions. So, for instance, they asked questions such as if your child is sick and needs immediate healthcare, uh, but your husband is not at home, what would you do? Um, if you ever needed medicines, uh, who would purchase it? Um, and do you think you can go and buy it yourself? So in this way, they were able to um, design questions which were really sort of tailored to uh, the local context and gave uh, sort of much more nuanced responses um, in that context. Um, and then, of course, after, you know, you've uh, developed um, some locally tailored um, questions, you also want to, you know, pilot them in the field before launching the survey to validate them and, you know, really want to make sure that, you know, whether you're asking the right questions, whether the questions make sense to the people that you're interviewing. Um, and there's, um, you know, a really interesting example uh, from a study in Peru where uh, a surveyor um, is uh, interviewing both, uh, is interviewing a woman uh, about decision making and uh, uh, the survey asks the woman, you know, in your house, if you have to purchase a cow, is it your husband uh, who decides when to buy the cow? Or do you decide? And, you know, the woman responds, we both decide. Um, and then uh, the surveyor persists and says, okay, so both decide, but, you know, how do you decide? Do you talk about it and get into an agreement? And the woman responds, oh, it almost always works that way. He comes and tells me, let's, you know, go to the village fair to buy the cow. And I tell him, fine, let's go. So I think this is just really interesting example that highlights you know uh, how uh, while the woman is interpreting a decision making process um, as joint because it involves some sort of a conversation with her husband uh, in fact it appears that uh, the husband is the primary decision maker so I think there are a lot of interesting uh, sort of insights that you can get uh, you know from piloting uh, your survey um, and then of course I think sort of the broad uh, tip would be that it's really useful to complement uh, you know, context-specific indicators of measurement with more standardized ones. Um, and then the last uh, challenge that I want to highlight um, is, you know, how uh, when it comes to empowerment, many aspects are susceptible to reporting bias. Um, so, for example, people may not answer truthfully about sensitive topics like gender attitudes, reproductive health, contraception use, violence, etc. Um, and there is a high likelihood of social desirability bias where respondents give answers that they think the survey wants to hear um, or are in line with the generally accepted social norms. Um, and um, oftentimes, one also sees that respondents' uh, stated preferences may be different from their revealed preferences, uh, meaning that you know people say one thing but do another. Um, and so here as well, uh, there are a lot of, you know, interesting um, uh, solutions that one can, you know, implement in the field. Um, so for instance, when possible, it's really advisable to complement indicators that are subject to reporting bias with more objective um, or proxy indicators. So as an example, um, 
something like uh, incidents of unprotected sex, which is, you know, uh, a very sort of sensitive question to answer. Instead of that, you could use incidents of um, childbearing among young women. Um, another strategy is to really try and triangulate an outcome using multiple indicators or perspectives when we don't have uh, sort of the ideal measure. Um, and um, I think the last sort of uh, 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 strategies, you know, to frame questions in a creative way. So, for instance, um, you could, you know, indirectly ask about certain um, situations coming up with sort of a hypothetical example. Um, and you could also use, you know, non-survey instruments such as, uh, you know, games, experimental vignettes, uh, implicit, implicit association tests to, um, to mitigate uh, reporting uh, bias. Um, so I think there are lots of interesting examples um, that are out there. Uh, so, for instance, uh, in an evaluation uh, for female leaders in village councils in India, researchers played a short recording of a speech by a local leader um, and where they were responding to complaints from a villager. Um, and respondents were randomly assigned to hear the same recording spoken by a man or a woman. And after the speech was over, they were asked to rate the leader's performance and effectiveness. Um, so something like this uh, really allowed researchers to measure whether there was some sort of subconscious bias that led people to rate uh, female leaders as uh, relatively less uh, effective. So lots of interesting strategies uh, that can be employed to uh, address some of the challenges that I mentioned. Um, I think what we've seen from this last little bit of conversation is that while there are a lot of challenges, there's also a lot of innovative solutions that evaluators and researchers have already been working with. And what I want to do is actually circle back to something, Talit, that you had mentioned a little earlier about the importance of training and ask you both what kind of capacity development support for evaluators is needed to ensure that these di gender dimensions are included in evaluation more broadly. Because as we just heard, there are a lot of challenges, a lot of potential solutions, but there's a lot of thought that needs to go into this. So it'd be great to get your thoughts on uh, this kind of capacity development support and what could be useful. Uh, Mega, would you like to share a few thoughts first? Sure, thanks, Jessica. Um, so I think the first thing that I'd like to say is, um, that to improve the inclusion of uh, gender dimensions in evaluations and you know broadly uh, research, um, I think it's very important to work with a broader set of stakeholders. Um, so not just uh, evaluators, but also uh, implementers and commissioners of uh, evaluations. And I think this requires a combination of um, advocacy, uh, awareness building, as well as capacity building um, activities. I'd like to talk uh, about some of the small steps that we've taken in this direction. So as you know, uh, the Clear South Asia Center is hosted by JPAL South Asia, um, and JPAL had developed this uh, fantastic research resource um, on measuring women's and girls' empowerment uh, in impact evaluations that uh, collated insights from the experience of uh, researchers around the world. And as part of uh, some of the dissemination that we were doing, we saw that there was a strong interest from diverse uh, stakeholders across the gender space who wanted more detail on strategies to measure uh, gender outcomes. And um, in response to this interest, we conducted um, a five-day online workshop on uh, uh, applying a gender lens to program evaluation in uh, this was in 2021 and uh, this actually targeted uh, 
practitioners um, and these were from NGOs, from development organizations and foundations uh, who were working in the gender sector in South Asia. So as part of this uh, workshop, uh, uh, because this was not targeted at researchers, but, but at practitioners, we started build the building blocks of monitoring and evaluation. So we looked at concepts of theory of change, uh, measurement and impact evaluation, as I mentioned, to really create awareness also around sort of the need for, uh, you know, these tools. And then we moved into more advanced, uh, uh, you know, explorations of the constructs of interest, such as agency, empowerment um, and norms. So I think overall, uh, the participants found this really exciting. They really learned how to develop accurate and precise measurement tools for these hard to uh, measure concepts. And I think broadly, uh, we've uh, we've seen that there is a great appetite um, in the community of stakeholders who work on gender issues. And as I said, this doesn't have to be researchers, but really implementing organizations who are designing programs, uh, you know, focusing um, on women. I think there's a lot of um, there's a lot of interest from them to build capacity on this topic. And the second part, uh, you know, which we get to start on, but I think is extremely important, is embedding gender dimensions uh, in government monitoring and evaluation systems. Um, and as you know, a large part of the work that we do at Clear South Asia is working with governments and helping them build uh, better m systems. And so I think um, moving forward, as we work with governments um, at the state and the central level on developing uh, monitoring and evaluation policies and frameworks, uh, we really want to make sure that there is a strong focus um, on gender uh, in a very deliberate and intentional manner. Uh, so for instance, ensuring that it's featured in evaluation guidelines, it's part of the terms of reference when the government is commissioning evaluation studies, etc. Um, and so this is, of course, I think at this stage, it's a little um, aspirational. It is going to take time, but uh, I think it's very crucial for uh, institu- institutionalizing uh, M&E practices that take gender into consideration. What's really um, useful about what you've just shared with us is the importance of bringing this capacity to development uh, across multiple different sectors and stakeholders, like you said, not just on uh, to evaluation professionals um, and researchers, but also practitioners who also participate and conduct a lot of monitoring and evaluation activities. So I think that is that's a really nice way of framing it, and I, I really appreciate that. Um, Talib, would you like to share some of your experiences or your thoughts on uh, supporting the capacity development aspect? Thanks, Jessica. Uh, so. I think um, you know one of the one of the central points that uh, we've been trying to make uh, today is that you know not not every data set uh, that we lay our hands on uh, to understand uh, to understand gender gaps uh, is created equal, right? So if if the right data are not collected or biased, uh, the resulting policies uh, that that use these data uh, for targeting. Uh, or or for evaluation uh, may be flawed. So I think from the capacity development perspective of evaluators, uh, one of the one of the things to put in place uh, is to make sure that they they recognize this this fact. Uh, and I think uh, on the you know providing evidence that speak to the importance of collecting uh, household surveys data in a gender sensitive way. Um, paying attention to uh, our respondent selection protocols, our field implementation protocols uh, to uh, to 
get that self-reported information uh, using uh, international best practices, the importance of doing that uh, for the for the resulting data and for the resulting analysis is, is in general a set of ideas that the evaluators need to subscribe to. So to the extent that, you know, this these nuances are not, you know, not, are not apparent, uh, you know, they, they have to be kind of fundamental ideas that are, you know, kind of reinforced uh, in capacity development of, uh, of, of evaluators. So circling back to some of the, some of the ideas that I, I mentioned earlier on, I think uh, having in place very clear practical guidelines and validated survey tools uh, you know, for, uh, for practitioners that are open access, Meaning publicly accessible and, and user friendly uh, is critical. I think for uh, operational staff uh, or evaluators uh, to rely on to adopt uh, and and incorporate into their uh, evaluation work program. So uh, these resources are again public goods. Uh, you know they are underinvested as such. You know research and and development efforts that. Uh, make available uh, these, uh, you know, these guidelines and 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 validated survey tools that are anchored in peer-reviewed research uh, should be uh, should be supported. Uh, but you know, the story doesn't end there, right? So you can have you can have your guidelines, you can have your open access tools. Without that close engagement uh, with the with the uh, with the evaluators, as Mega was also alluding to through several examples, it's not clear that they will be adopted or that they will be implemented in the right way. So I think that hands-on technical assistance, you know, in in every stage of the evaluation process, uh, is something that we often uh, see uh, to be needed uh, in uh, in uh, low and middle income countries uh, on the uh, on the on the adoption of these uh, of these of these methods uh, and uh, and in a way that also appreciates the the gender perspectives and the nuances that we're trying to bring in uh, to to this data collection uh, and the importance of basically challenging. Uh, some of the narratives, the myths, and the beliefs of, of gender relationships, right, that uh, may be inherent, uh, say, in the human subjects that we rely on to collect the data uh, from our sampled respondents. So I think that hands-on technical assistance, uh, you know, in the in the adoption and the implementation of these of these tools uh, on the part of the evaluators is also something uh, that is needed to ensure that. Again, gender dimensions are uh, included in the evaluation uh, more more broadly. Thanks, Talib. I what I really like about what we've been discussing is how important this is, what some of the challenges are, how we can continue to not only think about building our own skills as evaluators, but also some things that the field can do as a whole to help support the incorporation of um, measuring gender and closing the gender data gap overall. And I think we've gotten a really rich discussion. As we start to get to the end of our time together, what I'd like to do is turn a little bit more to a storytelling mode um, and ask you to share an example that you've seen where successfully integrating gender dimensions into evaluations or research created a change in a policy or program to really emphasize how this can be used in practice. Uh, Talib, would you like to share an example from your end? 
Yeah, Jessica, th- thanks a lot. So maybe I'll again, I'll, I'll give an example uh, from from the household survey world uh, in terms of uh, you know influencing programs of uh, of household surveys uh, that. Uh, basically, start to collect uh, better better gender data uh, as a result of uh, kind of long term long long term uh, engagement and uh, you know statistical capacity building on, on the part of our clients, uh, which for us as part of the Living Standards Measurement Study are our national statistical uh, offices. So uh, there there's there are several examples where. Uh, you know, incorporating uh, gender dimensions into uh, large-scale household surveys uh, have uh, have basically dramatically uh, altered uh, our understanding of of specific types of gender gaps. And uh, this kind of evidence, I think, was also a key part of the uh, momentum that we've been able to build uh, over the last, uh, particularly five years. Uh, in uh, better advocating for better co- methods for collecting individual disaggregated uh, data uh, on on economic opportunities uh, and welfare. So uh, a good example, uh, again, from the Living Standards Measurement Study Program uh, is the work that we did uh, on understanding uh, gender uh, gender productivity differences uh, in in agriculture uh, with a focus on Africa. So uh, before uh, actually uh, we have made the decision, uh, you know, to collect uh, plot level uh, agricultural uh, survey data uh, in large scale household surveys, uh, nationally representative surveys uh, that identified uh, the, you know the managers of these plots. Uh, within the household, uh, and also gave us very precise, uh, you know, measures of agricultural productivity materializing on these plots. Uh, the available evidence on gender productivity gaps in in much of Africa uh, has been based on small scale, non representative studies. So, collecting that data, uh, say, as part of uh, several countries that have been supported by the uh, Living Standards Measurement Study Integrated Surveys on uh, Agriculture Program, we've shown that the estimated gap uh, ranges from uh, 13% uh, to 25% uh, in, in, in Africa, estimated at the national level, um, and, uh, and the same data uh, in turn, propelled research that has that has showcased uh, closing of the gender gap in agricultural productivity uh, would lift uh, up to a quarter of a million of people uh, out of poverty uh, just in Malawi alone. So I think these figures uh, are uh, kind of these headline figures, uh, you know, showcasing that you can collect this data in large-scale household surveys. Uh, in a way that you know, kind of refreshes our understanding of uh, of these gaps, has been critical uh, for building this uh, momentum in getting to better gender data bit by bit. So uh, we've seen that in the last five years, we've been able to scale up um, basically preferred methods of uh, you know international best practices on. Uh, on individual disaggregated survey data collection, on asset ownership, uh, on work and employment, 
piggybacking on this uh, evidence on better gender data, uh, you know, facilitating better analysis and uh, and better understanding of realities on the ground. So as part of the Living Standards Measurement Study Plus program, we've been supporting uh, national statistical offices in doing things that many people have told us, you know, five years ago that can't be done. And these are seemingly simple things where we are interviewing individuals uh, in private uh, and asking about their lives and, and living conditions uh, so that they could report it uh, themselves as opposed to other people. I mean, these are simple ideas, but they have, again, uh, as we have repeatedly said, uh, fundamental uh, implications on uh, whether we uh, get these stories right uh, and, and and getting these stories right uh, versus wrong makes all the difference uh, for, for uh, policy decisions that want you know, one you know, we would we would like to promote uh, for inclusive growth. Um, uh, so, in a way, uh, we we want to be we want to stay committed to a culture that uh, that collects better gender data in in household surveys. Uh, in in LSMS, we we say that uh, every data point has a human story. And, and we want to know the genuine stories of our respondents and our storytellers uh, and capture their voices uh, as opposed to uh, as opposed to proxies. So, uh, you know, through programs like uh, like the LSMS, where we have development and validation of survey tools feeding into large scale survey operations, we can contribute to uh, closing gender gaps, uh, but also provide tools that are in turn valuable for survey practitioners elsewhere uh, that can then rely on these tools and adapt it to their settings and, and collect the information that they need. I love the idea and how you just framed. It's not just about data, but it's about the stories and getting the real life uh, stories from the people who've lived them. And, and that's what feeds into this data and gives it the human face. I really love how that example and the the work that you've just talked about really shows that. So I think that was that's a that's a beautiful way of talking about data and why it's important, especially in the subject of gender. Um, so thank you for that. Mega, would you like to share an example from your work? Thanks, Jessica. So I think um, I think we've already talked about uh, quite a few examples of you know gender neutral programs uh, where uh, looking at gender dimensions threw up some surprising results. So I thought I'll use this opportunity to actually talk about um, a gender transformative program which is being adopted as uh, a policy in India, um, and this is a school based uh, gender attitude change program. Uh, which was developed by an Indian NGO called uh, Breakthrough that was delivered to adolescent children um, in common schools in the state of Haryana, uh, a state that uh, actually has the most uh, male skewed sex ratio uh, amongst all Indian states. Um, and I want to talk about this example, I think, for a few reasons. Um, one, I think the program was quite unique in that, uh, unlike you know, standard um, empowerment programs that focus on providing life skills, like you know, negotiation training, etc., um, to adults and girls, this uh, had both adults and boys and girls participate in uh, classroom discussions about. Uh, gender equality, you know, things like, uh, you know, who's working outside of the house, who's responsible for household chores, um, etc. 
secondly um this program you know looked at a, a range of really interesting um outcomes uh, so it looked at how this two and a half year program changed um uh, gender attitudes uh, um, aspirations as well as behavior of uh, adults and children uh, and here as you can imagine there was a lot of um, interesting measurement work that was involved in terms of you know eliciting responses uh, from uh, uh, from the students um, and uh, you know there were uh, innovative techniques like uh, Uh, the implicit association test that was used uh, in addition to sort of self reported measures uh, then looking at how uh, you know students were actually behaving uh, apart from sort of again self reported behavior so for instance uh, to look at medium term outcomes they actually had students uh, being asked to sign a petition against dowry so they wanted to see really you know has their reported behavior actually translated into actual behavior so a lot of really interesting measurement work that was done as part of uh, the study and i think third uh, even the results i think are very interesting i mean of course in the positive note um, we saw that uh, students expressed uh, you know more progressive gender attitudes uh, but there was a, a nuanced result when it came to behavior so we saw that uh, behavior uh, change amongst boys was actually much higher than for girls uh, uh for instance boys you know reported doing more chores but girls did not report doing fewer chores and uh, sort of the uh, the the idea was that you know girls perhaps continue to face um, greater external constraints when it came to enacting the change um, in terms of the policy change i think the fantastic thing is that you know this program has actually uh, been adopted uh, by the government of punjab and is being implemented in government schools throughout the state and it's actually being delivered by uh, government school teachers so i think it's it's a great example of uh, a program that is trying to not just sort of look consider gender uh, but also really sort of change uh, you know uh, really uh, sort of sticky gender norms and i just want to add i think one thing since we are towards the end of the podcast um uh, you know talib spoke a lot about uh, sort of like you know the work that needs to be done on uh, providing uh, trainings and capacity building and i i also want to add that you know in addition i think uh, sort of just the idea that um, you know gender data gender statistics all of this i think really also involves a cultural change right so it's not just uh, something i think which needs to be seen as a nice to have you know it's sort of like at the bottom of uh, the document that have you done a gender disaggregate analysis but i think what is would be really fantastic and i think that's sort of the change that we're hoping to see that it's it's really mainstreamed um, in a way that it's part and parcel of like the entire process and it's something that you know people want to do rather than something that you know they have to do as a tick mark um, so i think really thinking about it as a sort of cultural change uh, i think it's really important absolutely i think that's a a great place to end our conversation i wish it could have gone on much longer um but i want to thank you both so much for joining us today and sharing both the great work that has been done and also the work that you're currently doing i think those examples really summed up and mega your last point really summed up how important this is and um how how far we've come and how far we continue to want to go to really build that culture of having gender incorporated into evaluation and research work having you both today sharing your perspectives was uh it was an absolute treat for me and i i look forward to hearing more about what you continue to do in this area in the future so um 
Once again, uh, Megha Talib, thank you so much for joining us and sharing all of your insights. Thanks for listening to Powered by Evidence. I hope you enjoyed the discussion. This is our pilot season, so we'd love to hear what you think. Please join the conversation. You can find us on Twitter and LinkedIn or leave a comment on the podcast page on the GEI website at globalevaluationinitiative.org. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. 